Hello to all our quality-minded listeners. A special shout out to the Mayo Clinic Care Network members and welcome to Key Into Quality, a Mayo Clinic podcast that focuses on healthcare quality, experience, and affordability trends and solutions. This podcast aims to help you take some of those first steps towards understanding and improving quality challenges in your organization. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler, a professor of medicine here at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, and I'm the vice chair of Mayo Clinic Quality and Affordability. Co-hosting with me today is Sherry Nemec. Sherry? Hello, and welcome to everyone joining us today for this conversation. I'm Sherry Nemec, Consultation and Relationship Manager for Quality at Mayo Clinic. I'm excited to join you today, Dr. Morgenthaler, for the discussion related to identifying patients who are deteriorating while we care for them in our hospital. Yes, thank you, Sherry. So, you know, failure to rescue, people who work in healthcare are familiar with this term, and it's really defined as a failure to identify the inpatient who's deteriorating or who dies that results from either a complication of the underlying illness or sometimes from medical care itself. There's really a difference between mortality rate and failure to rescue rate. Many patients who enter the hospital are unfortunately afflicted with illnesses for which there really are no cures. There has been and there always will be a hospital mortality rate, and some of that's appropriate. However, some of the deaths that occur in hospitals might be preventable in the sense that if we were able to detect deterioration at the right time and apply the right interventions in a timely fashion, then perhaps that patient would not die during that hospitalization. So that's really what people are wanting to identify is how can we prevent unnecessary deaths in the hospital? So being able to recognize deterioration is one of the main reasons that vital signs are taken periodically while a patient's in the hospital. And of course, it's one of the main reasons for the close observation that's involved with hospitalization to begin with. Despite the presence, though, of vital signs and clinical observations, it's sometimes difficult to detect deterioration at a stage that's early enough to provide that most effective intervention. So figuring out how to do that And doing it really well and really consistently is what we're talking about today. To help us sort this out, I've invited a guest who actually chairs our Medical Emergency Response Subcommittee. They oversee the daily operations of both what you've seen on TV as the Code Blue and what we often in healthcare talk about as the Rapid Response Teams. So these groups are responsible for defining the policies and procedures associated with each of those programs and for coordinating the education and training programs at our institution. Now, you're not going to have to continue to listen to me talk about this. I've invited Dr. Alice Gallo de Moraes, an assistant professor of medicine and a consultant in our division of pulmonary and critical care medicine. She's a colleague of mine. She's the chair of medical emergency response subcommittee and the associate program director for the internal medicine residency program. So Alice, welcome to the podcast. Yes, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. Well, you're always fun to have because you're excited about so many things and you're enthusiastic and that bleeds over into the work that you do. So actually, why don't you share a little bit about yourself? How did you come to Mayo Clinic? Really? I mean, how did you get here and what are your main areas of clinical interest? My pathway to Mayo Clinic is very long and convoluted, so I'm going to try to make it short and simple for you. So I'm originally from Brazil. I did residency in Brazil, and one of Mayo Clinic professors came to visit. And then a few years later, I came as a visiting physician to work with him, and I decided to then take all the tests to validate my diploma in the U.S., then ended up matching at University of Miami to repeat residency. 
and came to Mayo Clinic originally for critical care fellowship. Then I decided to do a pulmonary fellowship and then I joined staff in the summer of 2017. That's a long path, but I just <laughs> want to point out to some some of our listeners that, you know, this is one of the things that's really exciting to me about working at Mayo Clinic is we have, you know, traditionally really starting back early in our history, welcomed those who train abroad because we know that it enriches our experience and capabilities here. So Dr. Gallo, I'm so happy to have you here. Now, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the Medical Emergency Response Subcommittee, because, you know, you've landed in a unique niche there. Yeah, the Medical Emergency Response Subcommittee here at Mayo Rochester always has a representative from the trainee group, because our trainees, both from pulmonary critical care fellowship, critical care fellowship, and anesthesia residency, they are part of the rapid response team, and they are the leaders of the cold blue team. So when I came here for fellowship in 2012, I joined the team as the trainee representative. And as you said, I'm very excited about this area of medicine, like resuscitation, recognizing early signs of clinical deterioration. So they knew they had you. They totally knew they had me. (laughs) And I stayed as the trainee representative throughout both my fellowships. And then I joined as a member. And then when the former chair was ready to take on the chair role of the enterprise MERS, I was the next in line. So that's how I got that gig. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. So, so just to, so that I uh, understand it correctly and our listeners know, so yeah. you're the chair of Mayo Clinic Rochester's. Yeah subcommittee. And then there's, in addition to that, there's an enterprise-wide subcommittee that oversees the same kinds of activities. And so we all kind of work together across our many different organizations at Mayo Clinic. Is that? Exactly. Exactly. To make sure that our practices are similar. We also get together and review um, numbers to make sure that our numbers are similar, that our quality of resuscitation and our quality of recognizing those deteriorating patients is it's similar across the enterprise. You know, this is a quality podcast. So let's talk about that. How does the committee assess the effectiveness of our efforts at Mayo Clinic? And and like, what sort of things do you find? So there are several layers of making sure that we are taking quality into consideration every day. First is we review our calls every 24 hours just to make sure that we don't have multiple calls for the same patient, to make sure that we don't have unusual phone calls coming across the paging system. And then every month when the group gets together, we also review these numbers again, make sure that there are no outliers in terms of which unit is calling more or if there's a discrepancy between the occupation of the hospital and the numbers of rapid responses that are being called and cold blues that are happening. And then we also have our mortality review group. And if there were cases that we felt there was a failure to rescue, like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, then we review those cases in more detail and we provide feedback to those who were involved in things that we consider that were failure to rescue. So that's, so that's a lot of re- levels of review. Let me, yeah. let me just kind of take some of those. So the first thing I think you told me was that you, you know, on a daily basis, you're mm-hmm. kind of reviewing to see if you're getting more than one 
call on a patient. Tell us about, I mean, what does that tell you? What do you learn when you do that? And then what do you do about it? That's a fabulous question. So usually what we know about rescue and what we know about failure to rescue is multiple studies were done and we can see the beginning of deterioration in terms of vital signs, like you mentioned before, within the previous eight to 12 hours from a sudden acute deterioration. We start seeing things like fever, or we start seeing things like the patient mentation changes and sudden signs like that have been shown to be recognized within eight to 12 hours from the sudden deterioration. Our paging system is always recorded midnight to midnight. And I get those emails every midnight and the MERS group gets them too. So when we see that there are multiple calls to the same patient, then we go back and look into that chart and try to find if there was anything really missed or if the signs were so subtle that it was more that gut feeling that generated the call and there was nothing to be active intervened upon at that moment. And again, if there was something to be intervened upon in that moment, then we take it as an, as an opportunity to, for growth, as an opportunity to change. And our feedback is usually very educational and people really appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about how you do that, because I I think that it's common. Many organizations struggle with this. And Mm -hmm. I I remember even, I'm I'm dating myself, but back, you know, 15 years ago, when we were really trying to increase the use of rapid response Mm -hmm. team type of practices, that there can be a little bit of defensiveness on the part of the people who are primarily responsible for the patients. So, you know, share with us, how has your team learned to engage in a way that is constructive and not destructive of relationships there. To better answer the question, I would like to share with your listeners the structure of our team. So I am the chair medical director. So I'm a physician and my executive team is three amazing nurses. One is a CNS, one is a nurse educator, and one is a nurse facilitator who also is at bedside in the ICU. So usually we review these cases together. And when we see that there are opportunities for growth, we come as a team and say, hey, MERS has reviewed this case and we just would like to debrief because it was a very hard case. We always start acknowledging because Dr. Morgenthaler, 99.9% of the cases that are quote unquote considered failure to rescue were very tough cases. It was never the straightforward patient who came in with an infection and the infection doesn't respond to antibiotics and they get worse. It's usually those patients who had a recent big surgery. Let's make a cardiac thoracic surgery. And then the wound got infected and then they got better. And then something else happened. They had maybe a blood clot because they couldn't be on blood thinners for whatever reason. So it's never the straightforward patients Mm -hmm. that get failed to rescue. Um, It's usually someone who's really sick, has 17 million reasons to have that subtle change. That is very hard. So we always start acknowledging that what a tough case. And thank you so much for taking care of this patient. And in case you see this again, think about the following things Mm -hmm. that could have gone differently. And we never, we are very careful about using words like it could have gone better. It could have gone differently. Because again, we can't say that if we have gotten that patient to a 
a higher level of care or, or had done the intervention six hours earlier, we, we can't predict that the outcome would have been different. Right. Because unfortunately, research also shows that rapid response teams have not consistently been credited with decreasing hospital mortality. They right. have been credited with decrease in cardiac arrests, but not necessarily mortality, meaning that yes, these patients go to an ICU more frequently, but that does not prevent them from dying. And that to me tells us more about their initial condition and how sick they were to begin with. We have made a point as a team to never use words like this could have gone better or is, is always different opportunities for learning, for growing. Words matter. So we, we're very mindful of that. And, yeah, and people yeah. usually appreciate it. So it really, I mean, it really is the attitude of respect for one another that, mm-hmm. you know, enters into that discussion that I think my recollection is just that it's taken a very long time mm-hmm. to build that comfort level with one another, with, with reviewing one another's practices in a way that is constructive. So, yeah. yeah. And we have good leaders like you that promote that. So I appreciate, I really appreciate oh, the work you. that you do there. You look at these cases that have been uh, repeats. What other situations kind of prompt you or your team to reflect, you know, okay, I think we should have some kind of intervention here for improvement. What other sorts of things have you been learning? I'm very into processes also. The needs of the patient always come first, but processes also have been a very eye-opening to me. So for ex- recent examples, all our ICUs at Mayo Clinic have closed unit codes, meaning that the team in that unit is the one that attends to code blues. And sometimes for some reason, the pages go out as a housewide code, which would be the medical ICU team running towards that code blue. So sometimes when our paging system sends unusual text on the pages, we also looked into those. And usually is because our process needs revision. Mm -hmm. So the least steps to get a process to happen, the safest for the patients and for the clinicians and for the operators. So processes also sometimes need some tweaking. Yes. Same thing, for example, our stroke protocol, which is here at Mayo, Rochester is the rapid response team that responds to stroke alerts. So our stroke alert used to be like a two-page process. So... (laughs) like uh there are too many steps there are too many places where this could go wrong so fortunately we we realized that and we got together before something went wrong but again from a simple thing by having a script when a caller calls that they are concerned about a stroke how much difference that makes so simple like just have a script anyone who calls and is worried about a stroke at Mayo Clinic Rochester will have to say the same script. Otherwise, everything following that will fall apart. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, this is sort of ringing some bells. You know, as you know, I was patient safety officer yeah. for a number of years. And you're absolutely right. You know, when we saw real opportunities for improvement in the whole code processes, RRT processes, very often 
the issue wasn't with the personnel. I mean, the personnel mm-hmm. were there ready to do their job. The issue was with the process of getting the people there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, too complicated of a call schedule or too complicated of a team assembly or mm-hmm. uh, things like that. It's, it's very often those types of things that create the obstacles to the best care, aren't they? Yeah. And like simple things, like, for example, many years ago, we had one of our fellows was also a trained cardiologist here, and he was doing another fellowship in critical care. So he saw an RRT was called, was clearly a myocardial infarction. And instead of going through the process, this fellow called his buddies in the cath lab. But by not using the script, he did not call some of the cath lab personnel and it ended up delaying care it was not a problem it was within the 90 minutes but even inside of Mayo Clinic the patient was in the hospital and it took longer for him to get a cardiac cath because the way the cath lab was activated right. was not was not standard standard it wasn't our standard yeah. right right <laughs> you know so far we've talked a lot about you know detecting the deterioration and we've talked about the process of activating the team yeah what about resuscitation Does your committee look at that as well? Yes, we do. And resuscitation is very unique. So with resuscitation, we look at some extra things as well. We look, for example, if it's a shockable rhythm, we look to make sure that the shock occurred within a certain amount of time that the code blue was recognized, that the patient was in cardiac arrest was recognized. We also look into how long and how deep compressions are, how long outside of the chest the compressors are. So it's same amount of detail is just a little like little different details. Dr. Gallo, I just have to jump in here. Just curious, as you think about or reflect on the investigations from your committee that you've Mm -hmm. done over recent time, what would you say are the most common things that you struggle with or maybe are challenged by? And then can you also say, is that a common thing? Absolutely. So I would say that very commonly, chest compression rate is a problem across the resuscitation world, to be honest with you, because either chest compressions are too fast, meaning we don't give enough time for the heart to fill with blood, or we spend too much of a time outside of the chest trying to do other things that are important for resuscitation. But in the heat of the moment, we forget that the most important thing is the chest compression, is making sure that the heart is pumping and flowing blood. We found out a few years ago that our rate of adequate chest compressions was was below standards, and we decided to start this initiative of doing mock codes throughout the hospital, and we chose floors randomly, and we chose areas randomly. It was not not related to the amount of codes that they had. It was randomly because our plan was to go through all the floors. And in, in just about like six or seven months of our initiative, our compression rate improved by 21%. I'm also just thinking, oh, your chest compressions are too slow or they're too fast. And I'm thinking, how do they know that? Oh, that's that's a great question. So we have our defibrillators, actually, they tell us that. So after the event, we can download everything. We download the shocks, we download 
the chest compressions, effective rate, ineffective rate of chest compressions, how long we were off the chest. So our uh, machines tell us that, our defibrillators. Mm -hmm. Wow, now, that's great. I also know our emergency department has in the trauma bays, they have you know full camera systems and everything yeah. and that that can be, now does your committee deal with that as well? I wish. So <laughs> since our code blue team goes throughout the entire hospital, I wish we could have a GoPro so we could like just record everything for academic purposes, for, for us to get better even, but we, we can't. But when we did our mock codes, we asked permission for the people who were participating if we could record and, and we were able to use it as individual and group feedback at the end. So it was, it was very, very good. Obviously, you've shared with us a lot of things around performance improvement that are happening, and you mentioned the mock codes. Are there other things that you're working on to improve? We always look into how we can publish all of the things we're doing. So trying to make sure that things that we do well are shared with the world and things that we do not do so well are also shared with the world so the, so other institutions don't do it. During COVID, one of our CNSs, from one of our floor services actually um, helped us starting a different type of oxygen delivery device on the floor. And one of our countermeasures was if it was going to um, activate more rapid response team activations or not. And that was one of the things that we've noticed that with good, again, floor respiratory therapists, good floor nurses, and the teams being aware of how to use the devices, we actually had the same amount of rapid response activations during the height of COVID as we had in 2018, 19, and 17. Mm. Wow. So like Tim said, is like people are ready to do their job and they take a huge pride in taking great care of patients, but the processes have to work for them too. So this was successful because it was deployed in a way that we were all aware of it. So, and that was one, if, if an RRT is called on this patients, you don't, you don't even think about it. You just take them to the ICU because that means that what can be done on the floor has already been exhausted. But again, we, we had a lot of pre-planning for that one. I would say our main things are making sure that when activations are happening, uh, for the same patient more than once, we're looking into them. I'm very proud of the mock codes and how we were able to improve our compression rates and being very quick and open to changes during COVID. I, I'm very proud of the team as well. That was not never like, no, we can do it. Let's try, you know, so. Yeah, well, you know, so we're going to have to have you back because uh, there's so many other questions I have for you, but I, we are unfortunately running out of time here, but I just want to convey to you, you know, our thanks for your willingness to come and share your wisdom and experiences with us and with the, all the listeners here and, and also just for your leadership on that committee. I mean, you do a lot to improve patient care at Mayo Clinic and, you know, you just need to know that that's appreciated. Oh. So thank you so much. And your thank wonderful you. energy. I will yeah. note that yeah. as well. Yeah, we, we need to find out what coffee you're drinking and get some of that. So thank <laughs> to you be so on, much. To be honest, I'm going to tell you, I love this job. I, I love my job. I, I'm just like, I'm, I'm a very grateful person. So I think that's, that's where my energy comes from. Yeah, it shines so. through. So and thanks. I really yeah. appreciate you having me and, and having interest in resuscitation because there is a lot to talk about. So, oh, well, we, we, we're going to have you back. So, but we have come to the end of our podcast and we're so glad that you could 
join us and hope that the information that has been provided here is insightful and valuable to our listeners. Again, Mayo Clinic's Key into Quality podcast aims to help you take some of those first steps to address important quality challenges in your organization. The development of this podcast is part of our effort to be a valued resource to healthcare organizations striving to improve. Our goal is to improve quality for patients and the populations we all serve. Please let us know if you've enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, share it with others in your organization so that they can learn too. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.